Matthew 18, verse 15, here's what the word says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So today's sermon is on church discipline. Church discipline is a subject that makes many of us, if not all of us, a little uncomfortable. And I, I think that is for a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, the honest word about church discipline is that the church has not been faithfully consistent in this area. And so when I use that word, it, it means different things to different people. You may have experienced it differently. You may not have experienced it at all. And so that, that, un, that, un, that lack of clarity, that lack of, uh, of, of being specifically understood creates a, an opportunity for being uncomfortable. Certainly it is true that some have used church discipline as a cover for abuse. And if you are aware of that, certainly if you have experienced that, um, any discussion here um, may make you very uncomfortable. And frankly, so little is understood about it that uh, this makes the, the whole subject very ripe for much misunderstanding. And so my, my hope this morning is um, to give us some biblical understanding of what the scriptures are teaching, why they teach it, the, the, the reasons, the motivations behind it that we might rightly understand and hopefully faithfully obey God's word. Regardless of how uncomfortable this passage may cause us to be, I think we must reckon with the fact that this is the teaching of Jesus. And we have some options here. We could ignore it, couldn't we? We could read right past it and go, well, this was for first century, but not for, for our century. Uh, we could say, well, that's, that's interesting. Maybe we ought to think on it and discuss it, dialogue about it. Or we can just dive into it. Let us be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Let us be okay with saying, here's what the Bible teaches. We recognize we're not fully there, but we want to be there. So that's my heart today. My heart is not to condemn, it's not to beat the church over the head with this, but my heart is to faithfully declare, this is what the Word says. And where we don't line up with the Word, it's not the Word's fault, it's ours. We need to be the one that moves, not the Word moving toward us. And so with that, with that in mind, here's how I want to, to walk through this passage and really want to think about how this passage defines the church defines the church in our testimony. So uh, to understand this passage, we must understand that there is a defined group of the church. We have to know who's in and who's out of the church. Secondly, it is a defined relationship that we know who we are and whose we are. 
and we are defined by the presence of the living God. That changes how we relate to him and how we relate to one another. But let's begin with being a defined group. Look in the very first few words of verse 15. Jesus starts this with a, with a hypothetical question. If your brother, if your brother. Now, before you can go any further in the passage, we have to understand, if we're to understand how to, to work this passage and this teaching of this passage into our lives, we must define who is and who is not a brother. We have to understand who is and who is not a brother. The most basic starting point to understanding church discipline is to understand this is an issue that is only for the church. So Jesus begins with the question, if your brother sins against you, not your neighbor, not your boss, not your employee, not your friend, if your brother sins against you. Before you can consider any issue of church discipline, you have to determine who is it that is my brother and my sister. Here Jesus is referring to those who have their kinship in their relationship to God the Father. If you are a child of God, then others who are also children of God are your brother and your sisters. Now, we sometimes use that, that, those, those terms, those, those references, brother and sister, uh, to greet someone with whom we share a common interest or uh, something other than uh, faith in Jesus. But Jesus uses this term in the very technical sense of we, a brother or a sister, as children of God. Now, I have some very close friends who, uh, who have been, through the years, even before I was born, their families and my family have been really, really close. And so, those of us who are about the same age, growing up together with our families being so close, when I talk about them, when I think about them, I'll sometimes say, they're like a sister to me. They're like a brother to me. They're that close to me. And that's wonderful. I have enjoyed those relationships. They've been sweet to me. But I'm going to tell you something. When the blessings or the responsibilities of kinship family come due, those precious people, though as close as they may be, will not be blessed and will not be burdened by the responsibilities of family. They're close like a brother, like a sister, but they're not my brother or my sister. When the inheritance comes... They don't get to get in that line, amen? And when the difficulties of families come, taking care of ailing parents and those sort of things, they don't have responsibilities there because they're not a brother, they're not a sister, as close as they may be. Knowing who is and is not a brother or sister in Christ is foundational to church discipline. We have relationship with one another through our relationship with our Father in heaven. That is the first order of relationship. If your brother sins against you. Now, the second thing he says there, if, if your brother sins against you. So you have to know who, in, uh, who is and is not a brother, but you also have to know what is and is not sin. So it is, it is always important to define words, but it may be especially important in, in, uh, in, in our day. You and I live in a day when much social pressure is exerted on to attempt to create a world where each individual can avoid anything that might offend them, that might upset them, or cause them any emotional stress. You hear it all over the place. And with our words speaking to one another, we, we, we speak very cautiously these days in an attempt not to cause anyone offense. 
Even the definition of what offends has changed. No longer is it, um, is it about being unfair or, 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 or making an untrue attack on a character or action of someone. Today, it can simply be disagreeing with someone's decision or behavior. So someone may be doing something that is wrong, that is wicked, that is sinful. And if you say to them, that is wrong, that is wicked, that is sinful, they may say back to you, that's offensive to me. How dare you say that? And in the, listen, in the cultural context, in the public square context, there is a lot of pressure on you to back up on that and say, you just need to keep your mouth shut. Don't say those things. It will hurt their feelings. But sin, but dear friends, sin by definition is disobeying the word of God. And to sin against another brother or sister is to act toward another in such a way that is in disobedience to the Lord. Verse 16 is a recognition that to, that, that to this, is not, it's not always easy to judge this. So, so, so Jesus says, listen, you go and you confront your brother about a sin. They won't listen to you. Then you go get another or two more people and go with you. And, and notice what he says. He says, he instructs that the multiple witnesses are required um, so that they might hear the evidence to make sure that what is being accused is really what it is. It truly is sin. Now, this is an Old Testament principle. It's, it's, we, we find that all through the Scripture that for an accusation to have merit, to have charge, to have standing, it had to be more than just an accusation of one. It needed to have two or three witnesses. In other words, church discipline is not dependent on what one person feels or thinks, but on the counsel and the wisdom of the church that is established by the evidence thereof. The counsel and the wisdom of the church must seek to define and recognize one when one has truly sinned against another. We have to know who and is not, who is and is not a brother, and we have to know what is and what is not sin. And we have to know who is and who is not in fellowship. Now there's two things. There's a positive and there's a negative in these first few verses. Jesus says, if you go to your brother and you're able to restore the relationship, he says, you've, you've won a brother. But you go to the other extreme, he won't listen to you individually, won't listen to the two or three, take it to the church, and then he says, you're to treat them like a tax gatherer, like a Gentile. In other words, they are to be completely separated from the fellowship of the church. This is a defined group in the who is and is not a brother, who is, what is and what is not sin, and who is and who is out of fellowship with the church. So if a personal conversation doesn't resolve the issue, you go with two or three and then you take it to the, to the church. This third step assumes that all those involved are part of the same church. There's an assumption here because when they put out of the fellowship of the church, we're assuming that all those who have interacted before are in the church. In other words, you're not going to your neighbor and doing this who's not a member of the church. You're not bringing in people that you work with to, uh, uh, to, to deal with somebody within the church. No, these are church people dealing with church people because they're concerned about the fellowship of the church. Church discipline is dependent on defining who is and who is out of fellowship with the church. Now, today there seems to be little desire to give much attention to church membership. In fact, we've already talked about how most attention today is given to church attendance. 
Evidence of the loss of a biblical understanding of church membership is, the, is, the, is, the, um, is, is so common that, that many see no connection between church membership and even active church attendance. Sometimes I'll meet people who, um, you know, I introduce myself and, and, and uh, they'll say, oh, I'm a member of Central. And I'll say, you are. I'm the pastor at Central. We need to get to know each other. And, and what is, there's a sadness to that is that there is no shame at all that they see no disconnect between claiming they're a member and having attended in 30 years. They may have their name on the roll. I don't doubt that. But if you haven't attended in 30 years, you're not in fellowship with the church. Church membership is not simply having your name on a list. Church membership is about identifying those who are in fellowship with one another through Christ. Church discipline is confined to the church. Church discipline is the church's way of understanding who is and who is not in fellowship, first and foremost with the Father. You see, if you're living in sin today, listen to me carefully. Regardless of what the church says, if you're living in sin today, you're not in fellowship with the Father. And if you're not in fellowship with the Father, by definition, you're not in fellowship with his children either. And so when, when Jesus says, if he won't repent, if he won't turn from his sin after meeting with you individually or meeting with the group, then bring it to the church. Let the church affirm what is already happening, what has already happened. This brother is sinning against the living God. He's not in fellowship with the Father. Therefore, he's not in fellowship with the church. Let us testify. Let us define what that is so that he might be put out of fellowship to testify what has already happened in his life before the Father and with the church. Church discipline is the church's way of understanding who is and who is not in fellowship. It must begin with a defined group. Secondly, it is motivated out of a very defined relationship. So thinking about church discipline, maybe what, what, what pushes back against this is the unpleasantries of it. Nobody likes experiencing it. Nobody likes doing it. So why would we do it? I think there's some motivations behind this, and they're all relational driven. So listen to me here. First of all, we are motivated by a desire to be in fellowship. So the motivation of church discipline is not to see how many people we can kick out of the church. If that's where you start from, you have started from the wrong position. Church, church discipline is motivated by a desire to be. I want to be in right fellowship with you. And I want us to be in fellowship with one another. The honest confession about church discipline is that in part it has fallen out of favor because nobody enjoys it. No one being disciplined enjoys it and no one exercising discipline enjoys it. The hope would be that the faithful church would pursue discipline out of a desire to be obedient to God. I would hope that's where we start. But beyond obedience, we must pursue church discipline because we are motivated by fellowship, desiring that we would be in right, active fellowship with one another. As long as there is unconfessed sin, there is not fellowship between you and God. And as long as you're out of fellowship with God, you are also out of fellowship with God's church. You know, the reality is you understand this in a practical sense, that you cannot be at war with my wife and best friends with me. That's just not going to happen. You can't hate my children and expect to be invited into my home for dinner. Those two things are in contrast. If you hate part of my family, you and I are not going to be buddies and friends. 
Church discipline defends the fellowship. Church discipline protects the fellowship. Church discipline is motivated by, um, by, by, um, by, by, by the fellowship, by, by desiring right fellowship with one another. Do you desire to walk in biblical, faithful, precious, God-honoring fellowship with one another? I hope you do. Motivated by desire to be in fellowship. Secondly, motivated by restoration, not accusation. This is the key one. There are some who enjoy, I hope you're not one of these people, there are some who enjoy accusing and condemning others. If you work with one of these folks, if you're related to one of these folks, God bless you. These type of people tend to pursue positions that allow them to exercise legalistic authority over others. And many in the church rightly recognize this as contrary to to God's grace and thus avoid being accusational or confrontational. We we avoid accusations, we avoid confrontations, and we, we drive toward, we tend toward being gracious and accommodating. But friends, we must not abandon truth. It is right to say where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That is absolutely eternally true. Somebody say amen. But before you can know the abounding grace of God, you must recognize the abounding reality of sin in your life. No one who's ignored sin will ever know the grace of God in their life. A church that will not declare sin will not know the grace of God extended to them. We must be motivated by restoration, not accusation. What motivates church discipline is not a carnal excitement in the accusation and related condemnation. What motivates this is not that you somehow can lord over somebody else, that you can ferret out some secret information about them and hold it over their heads. That's wickedness, that's part of the world, that is not church discipline. The sad truth is that too often we are willing to let a brother or sister remain in their sin rather than see them restored to a right relationship with God and his church. Oh, dear friends, we must see this motivation to restore. Look in verse 15. I think this is where we see it most clearly. So Jesus says, go to a brother if he sins against you. Most of us never get past that. But Jesus says, go to your brother. Tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, that relationship has been restored. He's not been lost. Jesus recognizes right up front. That's what's motivating this. That you might gain your brother. You might gain your sister. What he means by gained is that the brother is restored to righteousness and the right fellowship with the church. Friends, there is no joy in accusations and condemnations, but when, there, when these things bring about the restoration of one who was lost, there is no greater joy for the church. Be motivated by restoration and, and prioritize spiritual relationships over temporal relationships. Now, there are many reasons why the church has not been faithful with church discipline, but I think that one of the greatest reasons is that we tend to prioritize our temporal relationships over our spiritual ones. What do I mean by that? Well, it's real important to you who's sitting around the table at Thanksgiving. I get that. 
And you don't want to be throwing rolls and flinging food at each other, right? It's important to you, those, those neighbor relationships, those friendship relationships, those family relationships. Those should be good and a blessing, but, but here's the danger. If we prioritize the temporal relationships, meaning earthly relationships, over the spiritual relationships, we will surrender to spiritual danger people with that just so that we can maintain a present sweetness of relationship with them. You may fear that if you confront someone who is in sin, you might lose a friendship, you might cause a family member to withdraw, or you might even cause somebody to leave the church. And you know the truth of it is? Those things may happen. Nobody likes confrontation. And when you confront someone over sin, they are having to deal with the question, are they going to repent or are they not? And if they're not going to repent, that tends to mean they reject you and reject anything that's going to call them out on their issue of sin. These worries are not without cause. But friends, our priority must be more for spiritual relationships than for temporal. This means that we must be willing to risk losing a temporal relationship for the protection of and the restoration of spiritual relationships. I think this is a testimony of love. To care more about someone's eternity than somebody's present. Do you hear me? I think it's an issue of love that we care more about someone's eternity rather than their present. Here's where many of us live. We'd rather have a pleasant Thanksgiving meal than deal with the brother or the sister, the cousin, the friend who we know is living in open rebellion before God and reaping the consequences of that. Oh, we may quietly, secretly in the, in the hallways and when, when they leave, shake her head and go, isn't it a shame? In southern Georgia parlance, that would be bless their heart. But we don't ever actually speak to them and contend for them. Have to prioritize spiritual relationships over temporal ones by defining the relationship. Lastly, we're defined by presence. So when you read this passage, I suspect that if you've ever quoted it or, 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 um, or studied it, you have separated verses 15 through 17 from 18, 19, and 20. I think, though, these two things go together. So Jesus gives this practical teaching. A brother or sister sins against you, you go to them. They, if, they, if they don't respond in, in repentance and obedience, then bring two or more to affirm that the accusation is true, to, 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 to hopefully draw them back to a relationship. If even then they choose to live in rebellious sin, they're confirming the fact that they know that they're living in sin, they're choosing to stay in sin and being disconnected from the fellowship of God and the fellowship of the church. Then bring that to the church that publicly it can be defined this person is out of fellowship with the church and treat them like they are not a part of the church, like they're a Gentile or a tax collector. Then Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That should sound familiar because we, Jesus said that in chapter 16 and I preached that passage last Sunday. He says, whatever you bind in heaven, bound in heaven, will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, and again I say to you, if two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is what I think Jesus is getting at. Is that the church, and particularly church discipline, is defined by the presence of God. So 
two very simple ideas here that I think will help you understand this. What the church affirms sets loose. What the church affirms is a testimony to the pleasure of God. And what the church binds, condemns, is a testimony to the condemnation of God. So first with the affirmation of God or the affirmation of the church to the pleasure of God. Uh, I preached this last week from Matthew chapter 16. And in those verses, Matthew recorded Jesus saying that almost the same thing is recorded here in, in chapter 18. Here Jesus is connecting the church's faithfulness to exercise church discipline with its testimony to what God loves and with what God hates. What the church affirms or allows to be in its present, uh, among its present members, is a testimony to what God loves and honors and cherishes. Now, when I was growing up, maybe you've had the same experience. When I was growing up, if I was doing something that I ought not to be doing, I know it's hard for you to believe that I ever did that. It happened once or twice. But if I was doing something that I should not have been doing and another adult saw me, those are in the days when random adults didn't mind chastising you. But particularly if that adult knew my parents, they would come up to me and they would say these words. What would your mama say if she knew you were doing this? Oh, it was running through my head. You're not going to tell my mama, are you? <laughs> Please don't tell my mama. What would your mom say if she saw you doing this? Now, immediately, that simple question struck into my little boy's heart a deep understanding that what I was doing was something that I would have never done if my mom was there. My mom would not have been happy. She would not have been pleased. And so the idea here, when Jesus connects church discipline with the presence of God, with, with, with the church binding and loosing, and, and when the church gathers two or more, or gathered, uh, God is present with us, what he's connecting there is our church discipline, both what we affirm and what we reject, is a testimony to the fact that when we gather, this isn't just a social club. This isn't some benign gathering of people. This is a gathering of God's people, and God is present. It's not our mama. It is the living God who has saved us from the reality of hell. And so what we affirm here today, we're affirming because God is present. And we want to affirm those things that he loves, that he cherishes, that he honors. And we're saying if God loves it, we love it. If he cherishes it, we cherish it. If he thinks it's great, we think it's great. The behavior of the saints that is allowed and affirmed by the church is a testimony to what the Lord loves. So let the gathering of the church be a testimony to God's righteousness. Now the contrary to that is, the condemnation of the church, or the condemnations of the church, is a testimony to the holiness of God. Now I know in our present context, we have a deep aversion to being negative. Oh, we don't want to be known for what we're against. But friends, I'm going to tell you something. It's okay for the church of God to be known for being against the things that God hates. Amen. God hates sin. There's no way around this. His wrath is poured out over sin. God is holy, and throughout his word, he says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. Church discipline testifies to the holiness of God. What the church condemns testifies to what God condemns. 
What the church prohibits testifies to what God rejects. The blessing of grace does not absolve us from the pursuit of holiness. Friends, let the gathering of the church be a testimony to the holiness of God. He is present. Now, I'm personally deeply thankful for those people in my life who have been brave enough, bold enough to confront me on issues of sin. I'm not saying I enjoyed it in the moment, but I'm saying when I look back on it now, oh, how precious those moments are and how deeply I love those people for what they did. Risk and reward drives much of our decisions. And I don't think it's any different here in the context of church discipline. Many of us have said when we think about church discipline that the risk are greater than the rewards. But I think, friends, that is not true. There have been moments in my life when I was planning to go and confront a brother on an issue of known sin. And I wish I could tell you that as I prepared for those moments, I went in bold and proud and stood up in his face and just bowed up. I'm going to tell you something. A lot of those experiences, I was absolutely physically sick to my stomach. There's one man in my church in Adel, and he had actually moved right before, taking a job in, uh, around the Atlanta area, and I drove up there. I had four and a half something hours to think about what was coming in that meeting, sick the whole way there. But I did those things because I believe, listen to me, I believe that sin will destroy you. And if I'm to have any true claim at all for love and compassion, then how in the world can I knowingly let one be destroyed by sin without doing everything in my power to contend for them? I wish, oh, I wish that the majority of those times that I've had to go and confront someone over sin, when I confronted them, they said to me, oh, you are so right. <laughs> I repent. Let us be restored to the Lord and with one another. But I'll tell you something. The true, honest answer is most of them have looked me in the eyeball and said, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now listen to me carefully on this next part. The worthiness of a fight or something does not come from the outcome of the fight. Listen to me. The worthiness of a fight does not come from the outcome, winning or losing. The value or the worthiness of a fight comes from from the value of what could be lost. There are some things that are worth giving your life to whether you lose or not. 
an alligator jumps out of the swamp, grabs one of your babies, are you going to consider whether or not you can really wrestle an alligator? Or are you going to dive in the swamp? Because the value of what could be lost is so valuable. The question not whether or not you lose in the fights is, is really not the question at all. I'm diving in, so would you. When we think about church discipline, friends, when we think about contending for the righteousness of brothers and sisters, don't give up on your brothers and sisters without a fight. Don't let them march toward the destruction of hell without you standing in their way. Speak truth into their lives. Contend for their restoration. And honor the testimony of the church. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.